Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, I missed you guys last week. I, uh, me and my wife weren't here, but I was thinking about you guys. I actually texted Robert during the service, and then I found out my text was shown on the screen, which is like, dude, there's just no privacy these days with anything you do, okay? I'm really upset about that, Robert. Um, yeah, so this morning with our with our message and the scripture that the Lord is uh, leading us into as we journey through the gospel of John, um, this specific text that we're going to study this morning and, and, and grow and learn in together um, is a very, very important text. And I really want to start with this emphasis that this text and your experiences in the church or outside of the church requires a ton of nuance. And because of that, um, there's no way that I'm going to be able to cover all that needs to be covered when it comes to a topic like this specifically. So I want to ask for your grace, and I want to ask that you would be in tune with God personally as well as you seek to hear from him and learn from him on what he has to say to us this morning. But recently, I was, uh, I was on Instagram, I follow Sports Center, and the guy who runs a Sports Center account Posts a lot of things that are, have nothing to do with sports. I don't know if anybody follows this account, uh, but there was this one guy. He keeps posting this guy who's working out, and he uses specific equipment in the gym as a part of his workout that have nothing to do with the purpose he uses them for. Okay, has anybody seen anything like this? I wanted to use these videos. I decided not to, but basically, he's like, there's a video of him carrying a, an entire like squat rack and doing lunges with a squat rack. There's a video of him on a pull-up bar with uh, a speed bike, and he's doing the pedals on the speed bike while he's on the pull-up bar. And everybody's like, dude, this, what are you doing? This is so extra. If you follow Trey Kennedy, he says, God bless, do less, or do less, God bless. Something like that. And um, so the whole point, though, when I was watching these videos is I just thought, Okay, it's kind of comical how this guy's using for, for workout equipment something that's not for its intended purpose. And everybody was joking about it and posting about it and laughing about it. But as I was watching those, I started to think in regards to this message, it's comical when you think about it with, with working out and whatnot, but what about when it comes to the church? What happens when the way of Jesus, the church, the family of God... God's prized possession misses God's intended purpose for her. Like what happens when we just completely miss what we were designed for and God's intention and purpose? In fact, let's go a step further. What happens when the church gets so far off track that we don't actually even know what the point is anymore? If you follow any news sources or Christian sources online, you'll notice that recently there's sort of been an onslaught of media when it comes to documentaries, podcasts, blogs, posts, um, exposing and detailing Christians and churches that have, at least in their opinion, clearly missed their purpose. Um, documentaries, podcasts, blogs, uh, documenting abusive and toxic church cultures, um, leaders who use the church for their own platform instead of God's purposes, Instagram accounts, preachers and sneakers, if you've ever heard of it, 
Instagram accounts, profits and watches, if you've ever heard of that. It's a real thing. Cover-ups and sexual abuse and emotional abuse, and the list goes on. But here's, here's what I want to say first is some of you in here, you have experienced environments like this. You have experienced toxic and abusive church cultures that have hurt you and wounded you and you have limped away from. And I want to say first off that I'm sorry. That I'm sorry that the space you were supposed to experience of a a safe and loving place with the family of God was abused or used against you. I know that's true for many people here. Now, at the same time with this message, I want to be very clear on this half as well, that my heart this morning is never to bash the church or be the one who exposes the church. But I don't think it's appropriate to either bash the church or choose to excuse the church and let it slide and sweep it under the rug, our sins and our failures as if they don't exist because they do. So I think this message is so important because I personally believe in the church with all of my heart. In fact, I've given my entire life to the church, believing that this is the vehicle God has chosen to use to redeem and reconcile the world to himself. Then in fact, he is so invested in the church, even with all of her flaws, that he was willing to give his entire life for it to die on the cross, to purchase you for himself. So we know that when it comes to the church, God is all in on you. He is absolutely all in. But he will not allow us as the church to remain as we are. His desire is that we would be pure and blameless before him. So what do we do? This morning, as we study this passage of scripture, we are going to see the people of God drift from their intended purpose. God has a clear and defined purpose for them. They are going to drift from it. And what we're going to do is we're going to seek to learn three things. The first is that we would learn from their problem. Number one, if you're writing notes, you can write this down. Number one, that we would learn from their problem. Number two, we would clarify our purpose. And number three, we would purify our hearts moving forward. Number one, we're going to learn from their problem. Two, we're going to clarify our purpose. Three, we're going to purify our hearts moving forward. If you can, turn with me uh, back to the text that we just read, John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And we're going to read 13 through 17, this very powerful passage of Jesus cleansing the temple. So John chapter 2, verse 13, here's how it reads. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples then remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So here in the Gospel of John chapter 2, we read that Jesus heads to Jerusalem for one of the primary festivals that the Israelites celebrate. little history lesson, 
Every year, male Israelites, 20 years and older, are required to attend three Jewish festivals. Passover was one of the primary Jewish festivals that they would leave their home, their town, their family, and attend the temple. And so here, Jesus heads, obeying the law, to attend to the temple and celebrate Passover. Now, if you know what Passover is, we just sang about part of the story where we sing the song where you split the sea so I can walk right through it. We celebrate the Passover that the Israelites were exiled from Egypt, excuse me, they were delivered from Egypt. I was thinking of the Exodus. They left Egypt and they were delivered from their bondage and their slavery. And so the the Passover festival was to celebrate every year that they were now free because of what God had done. And so they would head to the temple to celebrate and worship and remember. And so they would go to the temple. Secondly, when they got there, they had to offer sacrifices at the temple as a form of worship and covering their sin against God. And thirdly, they would have to pay a temple tax. And every year they would pay this temple tax with a Jewish coin as a way to honor the temple, honor the Lord, and to continue those practices so they could continue to worship. Now, all that's good, but here's where it gets a little dicey. Because men and women would travel such long distances to Jerusalem, in order to take an animal for a sacrifice could be a logistical nightmare. If any of you have kids, have you ever traveled with kids? This, this past week we were in Mexico and seeing families with their children was such a beautiful sight to see. Their families together. Jim Gaffigan has like a skit on this about going to Disneyland with your kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go there. So, so it's really funny. Anyways, um, so it can be a logistical nightmare. So families traveling with a, a herd of pigeons. I don't know what you call a pigeon group. Flock of pigeons. Um, so, a, you know, it could be a really tricky situation, as you could imagine. So they were sacrificing oxen and, and lamb and pigeons and birds. And so this was really tricky. And so what had happened was they had started setting up tables to sell animals at the temple in order to be helpful and resourceful and make it um, an easier experience for those traveling to the temple. Secondly, because the Israelites were subjected under, under Roman authority... Their primary currency was the Roman coin, but the temple tax was required in a shekel, which was a Jewish coin. And so they had to transit, or they had to, uh, what's it called? Exchange. Guys, my brain. Uh, right now, I'm so sorry. So they had to exchange their currency for Jewish currency in order to pay the temple tax. Now, can you see where I'm going with this? So here's what begins to happen. What was initially maybe a resourceful opportunity to help those worship who are traveling to the temple became an opportunity to extort people, to use people, and to build their own platform. And so traders began to set up selling animals that they said were deemed worthy for sacrifices and to extort the people with prices to purchase their animals and And coin traders began extorting people with their exchange rates so they could make money off of them. But it's worse than that. 
I have a map here that, that I found online that I wanted to show you guys real quick. And this is kind of a drawing of what the temple area would look like. Now, for those traveling to the temple in order to worship and pray and remember all that God had done for them, the Israelite leaders had set up these tables with animals to, to purchase, with coins to exchange in an area called the Court of the Gentiles. This was outside the primary temple area. Now, here's why this is important. The only, the only place that people who were not Jews could worship or pray was in this area, the Court of the Gentiles. Here's what that means. If you're not a Jewish person, but you've heard of this God, the God who delivers people through the seas, who cares about their freedom, who loves them, who redeems them, and you think, I want to meet that God. The only place you can go to pray or praise or worship is in this court. And when you get there, the only people in that court are the people trying to extort you to purchase their animals, to take your money so that you can pay a temple tax that you don't even subject to. Let me clarify how important this is, guys. You and I, we are Gentiles. You and I, every one of us. Let's say one day you wake up and decide, I want to meet the one true God. So you get in your car, you drive halfway across the country to a little podunk church in downtown San Antonio. You walk into a ballroom and you desperately want to meet the living God. But when you walk in the ballroom, the only thing you're greeted with is merch booths. People who won't talk to you. Leaders who force you to tithe or give against your will. Or guys who look to use you to build their own platform. That's exactly what happened here. Instead of the Jews who should have been ministering to the Gentiles and inviting them into prayer, instead of praying for the people, the priests were praying on the people. So the Jewish leaders and community, they had turned a place of worship into a place of profit. Worsby says this, just how before this at the wedding, the, the wedding had run out of wine and the temple had run out of glory. There was none left at this point. So what's the problem that we identify here that we have to learn from? And I'll put this on the screen for you. Here's the problem. The problem is this, when we distort God's intended purposes for our own selfish preferences. Here's the problem that we see with the Jewish leaders, with the Jewish community in the temple. Is when we distort God's intended purposes for our own selfish preferences. Is everybody tracking with me real quick? Okay, so here's the deal. There's obviously, there are some obvious examples of this. If any of you have ever turned on late night TV and you see the televangelist telling you, sow a seed of $1,000 and God is just going to bless you right now in your seat. I know you all have experienced this. That is a grade A distortion of God's intended purposes for ministry. Is that here we are to minister to people, yet I'm obviously going to use you for my own selfish purposes to make a profit off you. That is a very clear distortion. But what about some not-so-obvious examples? Like, what about some not-so-obvious examples of, you, you may read this and you think, well, I'm not, I mean, number one, I'm not Jewish. 
Number two, I'm not a religious leader. I don't lead a church. Number three, I don't sell animals. Four, I have nothing to do with currency exchange. So you think, I'm good. I'm walking away. Today, no conviction today at church. That's a good day. You get home, you get to the car, and you're like, what'd you learn? Honestly, nothing. I'm great. I honestly learned how good I'm killing it. So, but here's the deal, guys. What we see with the Jewish leaders and and the, the leaders of the temple, it's actually, it's something that infiltrates every one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. These patterns are more elusive than you think. Have you ever refused to welcome people in the church that you don't look like or connect with or vibe with? You ever chose to just not welcome people, not go out of your way to talk to people, not want to bring them in and make them feel loved? Why? Because we were busy with our own priorities. You ever done that? Same thing. Have you ever hopped from church to church picking your churches based on how good the sermon was, or you didn't like the music, or you did like the music, or that pastor's kind of boring, and this pastor's kind of sexy, and I don't know why you would say that, but (laughs) I was just going with it. Sorry. I'm just going with it. Sometimes things come out. So um, here's what happens. We turn the church into a carnival instead of the family of God. You don't perform. I say this all the time. You don't perform for your family. Okay, when you go to your family reunion, you're not putting on your little skit for your family. They're like, dude, we know you. We changed your diaper. Chill. All right, your family. You don't need to perform for us. But we make it into this performance. I'm going to come here. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's just coffee wasn't very good. I'm going to go to the next church. So that's the same thing. When we distort God's intended purposes for our own selfish preferences. You ever gone to the church just to get a date and then left God? Let's be real. We've been there. We've all been there. Have you ever approached God in prayer because not that you actually want Him, but you want something from Him? Once again, you take God's intended purpose... You distort it for your own selfish preference. That was the sin of the people in the temple, was taking something God had intended for one purpose, distorting it for my own selfish preference. This can happen in a mega church. It can happen in a cowboy church because it happens in each and every one of us. Which leads us to our next question. If this Sin can happen in all of us, and it's so easy to drift from our intended purpose. What is our intended purpose? So as we continue, we look at this. What's interesting about this text is this isn't actually the the only time that Jesus goes into the temple and starts flipping tables. In fact, most scholars believe this is the first time he does it. And again, on Passover, three years later, before Jesus heads to the cross, he heads to Jerusalem one more time. You remember Holy Week? We talked about Jesus riding in on a donkey, and the crowds greet him with Hosanna. When he gets into the city, he heads right back to the temple, and he finds the same leaders doing the exact same things, which shows you this. Number one, how stubborn we are as people. Number two, how patient God is with us. He finds them doing the exact same thing. And here's how Luke records this. 
in Luke, I think it's Luke 19, verse 12. It says, this is a completely different incident, by the way. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out those who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then he says this, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer. You make it a den of robbers. Jesus finds these religious leaders doing the exact same thing they were doing three years before this. Nothing has changed. And so he comes back and he flips the tables once more. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Here's what you need to know. The temple was the place people came to experience the presence of God. God's presence, we know, is it's omnipresent, so it's all places everywhere, but for some reason, God in his omniscience decided to contain his presence specifically in the temple. The priests would go to meet with God to sacrifice animals for the sins of the people as we look to an ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. It was a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing system, but his presence was there in the temple. People went to meet with God, connect with God, worship God. That's where he was. They longed to be with him. You think of like, for any of you who are married here, maybe you travel apart from your spouse and it's been a week or two weeks and you start to miss them, right? And you call them and you're like, I can't wait to see you, baby. And you think about them because you want to be with them. You want to be near them. And so the people traveling these long distances, they long to be with God. But God's house of prayer has been turned into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Now, here's what's really important here. Um, we now live in the New Covenant or New Testament era, uh, or called the era of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have a temple to go to. As you can tell, this certainly is not a temple. And the white guy on the stained glass is not Jesus. I want to clarify that again. No one knows who that guy is. Actually, most people think he was like a, one of the people who killed Jesus. I can't remember. So it's not good. Okay? We're going to kick it out of the wall after the service. So we don't, we don't have a temple to travel to, and we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. Why? Well, when Jesus finished his work on the cross, he said, it is finished. And what he was saying was, I have paid the price. I am the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. There is no need to offer yearly, weekly, monthly sacrifices anymore to cover sin because I have cleansed sin. Jesus paid for our sin with one final swoop, covering all of it, past, present, and future. And when he resurrected from the dead, when he died on the cross, it says the temple curtain tore in two from top to bottom, meaning God's presence no more is confined to places, but it exists in people. In John chapter 4, Jesus says that, that you will worship in spirit and truth. He, he enters us into the age of the Holy Spirit, where now Jesus is no longer physically with us, but he has sent 
his spirit, the exact representation of his nature and character, into every one of his believers who chooses to place their faith in what he's done for them. So now, we don't go to a temple. We are the temple. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching. So, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that, Do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, you don't have to travel thousands of miles to meet with God. In this moment, you could say, hey, God, he's right there with you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we are the temple. But here's, but here's what that means. That, that means that the church the, the, the body of Christ, individual believers all adopted into a family. We are the temple. We are the church now, wherever we go. We don't even need a building to be God's temple. So what's the purpose here for us as we, as we try to learn from the experience of those believers with the temple? Here's the purpose. The purpose is this, very simply put, that the church is the family of God focused on loving God and loving people. So this is very simplified. We'd have to do a whole series on the church to get into all of it. But very simply put, here's what I mean. When I say, what's our purpose that we got to stay aligned to so we don't drift and start distorting what God intended for us is to remember what we are. What are we? The church, we are a family that loves God supremely and loves people effectively. Okay? We are a family. Let's talk about that first. Okay? We're not an event to attend. We're a family to belong to. That's a massive difference, guys. Listen, when, when people tell you they went to church, they often say, like, I went to church. What service? Oh, the 11 o'clock service. I like that one. There's cooler people in the 11 o'clock service than the 9 o'clock service. They sing louder. Got out of there, though, real quick. Kids got out of child care. We had to get to lunch. We'll probably be back in three weeks. Look, what we do is we make the church an event to attend. It's sort of like, did you get my Google invite? We're going to church. Okay? It's a family to belong to. Sure, there are events. Sure, there are gatherings or service times. Those things aren't bad. But let's not get it twisted. The church is a family to belong to. Here's what that means. If you're missing for a month, your family should be like, yo, have you seen John? Where is he? Like, if your brother didn't come home for a, for a month, you'd be like, somebody call KSAT 12. Let's run a story on my brother. But when we make it an event to attend, it's like, well, I don't know anybody anyways. I get out of here as soon as I can. I don't want to know your name. Honestly. So it's a family to belong to. Second is this. What's the purpose of the church? To love God supremely. That means when we gather, everything we do is centered on loving God supremely, worshiping him, glorifying him. That when you leave, you better know we were talking about Jesus. Okay, we're not skirting around the issue. We're not doing that. So when you leave, you need to know, okay, look, you could, you could say this. I don't really buy what they're saying, but they kept talking about a man named Jesus. I would be okay with that answer, actually. 
is that you at least know this is what we're about. Because we believe that this is for his glory, for our greatest good, is that you would know Jesus. And the last is that we would love people. What does Jesus say? The greatest commandment is in all scripture. Love God, love people. Really simple. Really simple. That when we gather as a church, we're a family. We love God supremely. We love everyone who walks in here. We love you. If you walk in here and you don't feel loved, connected with, nobody talks to you, we have drifted from our purpose. We have distorted the purpose of the church. If you come in here and you notice there's just like 50 little clicks, but you're over by yourself, nobody wants to leave their little click and talk to you. Mm, we missed our purpose. We're a bunch of coin traders. We're the people in the temple. We done filled up the court of the Gentiles. You came to hear from, from God to have somebody pray for you, but they're so focused on their preferences, they didn't even see you. So we may not have a temple to attend to, but we have a church to protect, to gather, to worship, to glorify God, to be a family, to love God and love people. So how do we get off track? How do we get off track with that? What happens? What happens next is this, and this is how Jesus responds to when he sees us off track. And here's the prescription, just to go with peas. Last point is this. Jesus disciplines us to purify us. Jesus disciplines us to purify us. What do I mean? If you notice in our text, when Jesus shows up and the religious leaders, the community, the people working the temple are distorting God's intended purpose. A house of prayer has become a den of thieves. People are being neglected. People are being used and extorted and missed. Jesus doesn't just walk in and be like, guys, try better next year. I'll be back in three years. Good luck. What does he do? What does he do? He flips tables. He apparently makes a whip out of cords, which I have no idea what that is. And he starts driving out animals, rebuking everybody, and kicking them all out of the temple. Now imagine this is your day job. And some random dude comes running in and does this at your job. You would, we would all just be like, ah, who are you? <laughs> I mean, this is what happens in this story. This is these dudes' job. Jesus <laughs> kicks them out of their job, takes over like a boss, and just starts preaching. I'd be like, man, I don't know what that was, but that was awesome. So the disciples remember from Psalm 69 in our text the disciples remember, it says, zeal for my house will consume me. This is what Jesus says, or excuse me, this is what Psalm 69 says, that the disciples remember, zeal for my house will consume me. The word zeal, it means godly jealousy or fierceness. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying, fierceness for my house will consume me. What that means is God really, really cares about his house. He is jealous of his house. 
Now, when we think of jealousy, we only think of the sinful way. There is a righteous jealousy as well. It is a righteous jealousy that desires complete devotion because God knows he is the absolute best thing and person for your life. It's the same jealousy a husband or wife would have for their spouse as they drift from their relationship. As they look to other people, a godly jealousy would say, no, 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 no. I want your affection and devotion for us alone to protect this covenant. God knows he is the very best thing for you. So he's jealous of you. So when Jesus shows up, he desperately desires that we would be his alone because he cares for us more than anyone and he wants to protect us and love us. But here's what happens. When you see this version of Jesus, this is not a version of Jesus we talk about a lot. We love to talk about Jesus who is compassionate and, and patient, who is inclusive. But what about the righteous and angry Jesus? The, the justifiably angry Jesus. Righteous anger. At the wrongs of this world. Here's, here's what this means. Jesus is angry when power is abused. He's angry when people are used. He's angry when injustice goes unchecked. That's what we see. Let's get that clear. He's loving, patient, kind, and compassionate, but he also cares about justice. And righteous anger is produced in a righteous person when they see that there is a problem that is misaligning with our purpose. And it's not selfish. It's never out to hurt the people. It's to realign you with your purpose. When we're not acting as a family, loving God and loving people, we are not aligned. We've distorted God's intended purpose. We're seeking our own selfish preferences. So God in his mercy, you know what he does? He flips our tables. He comes in and he seeks to realign us with our intended purpose because that's the greatest good for our lives. That's the greatest good for the gospel, for people. This means because God loves you so much, he will not allow you to stay off course if you are his child. Do you hear me here? Check this. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. And if you do not receive discipline, you're an illegitimate child. That means if God loves you, he will discipline you. If you get off course, he's not trying to, there's, he's not punishing you. Discipline and punishment are completely different. Your punishment's been covered at the cross. God disciplines us to purify us, to realign us with our purpose. And so that's what he does. So you have to hear me here when we learn from this text this. When it comes to these areas of our life that get so out of alignment and we distort God's intended purpose, we have sin in our lives that we just won't rectify, we won't deal with, God's trying to realign us, he cares for us, he loves us, he wants us in alignment with him. So here's what you need to know. Either you will deal with your sin privately before God or your sin will deal with you publicly before people. You will deal with your sin privately before God or your sin will expose you publicly before people. That's what happens in this story. The very thing Jesus tried to, to deal with, with his people, they, they would not correct. They would not listen. 
and they were exposed publicly before people. If there's anything we've learned lately is that God will, you will be exposed. Your sin will find you out sooner or later. We see documentary after documentary, podcast after podcast, leaders who thought they swept things under the rug, they come to the light. God will bring it to the light. So what we can do is bring it to the light ourselves. God, I'm bringing this area of my life to you. I'm bringing the, the motivation I struggle with to be seen. I'm bringing that to you. I don't want to be in the way, God. God, I'm bringing this sin to you. I'm bringing my addiction to pornography. I'm bringing that to you, God. Are you going to bring it to the light or is it going to be exposed? That's what we see here. If you don't deal with your private sin before God, it will deal with you publicly before people. So as we, we close this morning, um, a few questions I just want to ask for, for all of us to, to chew on and wrestle with as we think about a very, very sobering passage. And, um, and so we'll do this in two parts. One is for us collectively as a church, two individually as people, um, as the church. And here's what I want us to chew on as we respond. Number one, what would Jesus do if he visited our church? Meaning like, if Jesus walked in here, how would he respond to what we are doing? Would he be pleased with our worship? Would he be pleased as he looked at our relationships? Would he approve of our heart for the lost? Would he commend our giving in the way we use our funds here at the church? Would he say that our prayer life reflects total dependence on him? Would he see us living in alignment with his purpose? That's a question we all have to ask, and even me, more so as a pastor, the shepherd in this community have to really ask, what would Jesus say? But then secondly, on an individual level, would the Lord be pleased with you? Now we know positionally in Christ, you are forgiven and you are loved and you are redeemed and nothing can change that. Hear me here. But in the same degree that God saves you, and redeems you positionally, he wants to change you progressively. So he wants every area of your life to come in alignment with that position as holy and perfect in Christ. So here's the question. Where would God clean house in your life if he walked into to your life right now? Are there any areas he would start flipping tables? Where would he clean house in your life? So as we spend some time in prayer this morning, just reflecting on these, and we're going to respond with a song that's like, I mean, on the nose. What would Jesus do if he visited our church? And then where would Jesus clean house if he came into our life? I want you to think about these things, take a moment, and, and then we're going to respond in worship.